I am Edgar Papke. Hi, I'm Ken Sagendorf. Good morning. Yeah, good morning, and welcome to the True Alignment Podcast. Coming you, coming from, <laughs> coming <laughs> live from the Innovation Center in the Anderson College of Business and Computing at Regis University in Denver, Colorado. Here we are. Here we are. <laughs> We're having fun this morning. I wish you all could see Edgar rocking out to our intro band, The Skinny, this morning. Welcome. So, <laughs> so uh, as always, some notes up front. You can. Uh, we, we'd love to have your questions here live during the podcast or in between our podcast, and we'll address them here on the air. All thoughts, comments, and questions are welcome. And encouraged. Encouraged. Yeah. Well, uh, Ken, how are you doing? I'm doing. I'm I'm doing great. What's on your mind this morning? Uh, so much, always as always, Edgar. It's right? always. It's always. A, it's always a wrestle match your, for me in my mind. Uh, your your <laughs> your depth of thought is as obvious as well as your breath. Without the D. <laughs> yeah, we're we're close together now. I get it. Um, well done. <laughs> no, I. So I mean, Edgar, the breath of your your the breath of your thinking. Years ago. Yeah, not so many years ago. Not so many years ago. You you wrote a book with a friend and colleague Tom Lockwood. Tom, yeah, Tom, Tom Tom's a very dear friend. We actually met uh, on a, on a uh, soccer or football pitch. Uh, his daughter came out to try out for a team that I was coaching at the time. So when our kid, when our daughters were younger, and so we formed a friendship there, and out of coincidence. Wound up working on some projects together in the realm of, of design and culture and organizational change. Uh, Tom is truly a guru of design worldwide. Um, he's one of the, I think there's three lifelong Red Dot judges. And Red Dot is the Innovation Expo that's held annually over in Germany. And um, he's one of the few people in the world actually that has a, a PhD in design management. And just... Uh, incredibly intelligent and insightful and above all just a wonderful human being just a great kind generous soul yeah great person yeah so i know uh for me you know you and i uh we started working together because your alignment framework Mm -hmm. is so elegant elegantly simple anything that's elegant is is ultimately simple but it is just something that uh, colors everything that I see and how I see it. And design thinking uh, is like that for me. I mean, mm-hmm. we're sitting here in the innovation incubator, and I remember when the then business dean asked me to come and start an innovation center, I said, well, I'm building a design thinking studio. Yeah. And he, he said to me, honestly, he said, I have no idea what that is, but come on, <laughs> let's do it. Um, and, and, you know, design thinking is one of those, uh, it's, it's another one of those frameworks. Mm-hmm. That is so uh, elegantly simple. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. And when you think about the D school at Stanford and you think about the variations of the theme on design thinking, the idea is not to make it overly complex. It's easy for us as human beings to create a lot of complexity in how we solve problems and see the world. Design thinking, in a way, it brings the conversation to a level of sheer truth that we all can uh, can understand the data, we can all understand our experiences in a very human cent- I mean, it is human-centered, it focuses on the idea of human creativity and, and human experience, yeah. So as you and Tom, thank you, Edgar, as you and Tom went out and, mm-hmm. and you did the research to do, this, to do this book and write this book, 
you, you focused on 21 companies. Can you talk a little bit about the commonalities between those 21 companies? Yeah, because we hatched the idea out of just this constant, this ongoing conversation in his work and Tom's work, independent of, of our relationship um, and the, just a couple of projects that we had worked on. In our conversation, he kept coming to the idea of coming back to the idea of culture and the importance of culture and how different organizations uh, so much so depended on an alignment of the processes that they use to solve problems and create design in alignment to the culture. And he so he inevitably kept coming back to the idea of the true alignment framework and, and having that conversation. So when we uh, came up with the idea of, well, let's do some research, we hadn't intended to go set out, we didn't set out to write a book. We just wanted to better understand what the attributes and characteristics of innovation, really truly innovational companies are. Uh, we wanted to, we wanted to get at that. And, and we thought if something noteworthy came from that, we'd publish it in some form or another. And um, how we came to the companies was simply that we started by looking at companies that used design thinking or were really notably innovative. And that was showing up on the lists of Inc. Magazine, Forbes, uh, Fast Company, uh, who are the most innovative organizations in the world every year. And then we started uh, reaching out to them and uh, seeing if they wanted to participate. And what we found very quickly was that they all used some shape, in some shape, form, or another, design thinking as their core process. And that had a way of also then showing up in their cultures. And we found that to be really exciting to look at it through that lens. Yeah, some, some big names uh, that you, wouldn't, you would not be surprised to see on there, the IBMs of the world, um, the Honeywells, the 3Ms. Yeah. And then there's some companies that probably uh, lots of folks may not have heard of. Yeah, yeah, or that uh, we looked at it globally and wanted to also reach out to some uh, that, you know, in the global market, um, Tata, um, looking at it uh, uh, through also the lens of different industries. Yeah. And so, yeah. Yeah, companies like Lego, just a, an amazing bunch of companies. But Edgar, you mentioned that, you know, they all had, they all had a design thinking backbone that helped their processes. Right. And so, you know, if you're, if you're listening to the podcast and, and you're, you're working in a business, you own a business, you lead a business, what does it mean to have design thinking as uh, an undercurrent of the process that the business operates by? There's a, there's a lot to unpack there. And that, that's a great question. And it, there's a lot of different answers that, that are a part of it. I think first and foremost, when you start looking at, and this came out as a, as a result of innovation by design, so we asked over a thousand CEOs what the key barriers and challenges were to uh, innovative thinking in their organizations, and um, the number one answer was a lack of problem-solving skill, which also then we equate through in, our, in, our, in the work that we did with the 21 organizations to understand their traits and characteristics, we found that by engaging in a process, you could teach the skill. In other words, if we, there's a consistent process that's used through the organization. So what it does is it, it allows us to understand what, how things get done 
and the alignment of that, which is extremely powerful. Um, we all have a common framework for how we come at a problem, how it is that we share information. And so we begin with just for, at a very practical level, what design thinking provides to an organization is a consistency of process, which helps people to understand how to be competent. Um, how do I contribute to success? What are the paths to success? When we think about culture, we define it as how we individually and collectively attain success. How do we create success together? And so that how becomes remarkably powerful because it gives people confidence. It allows them to understand and to engage in a fearless way in the process of innovation, which is solving problems. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. When we built the innovation incubator here, our design studio, really I wanted, I, I wanted three meta skills from mm. learning the process. I wanted the ability to deeply listen to one another because it is human centered. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, one of the, uh, once people are uh, initially exposed to design thinking, um, you know, we, we create an expectation failure for them because we ask them, we ask them to listen first and openly before they define a problem mm -hmm. or maybe even think they believe themselves to have a solution. So that, that, that skill set of being able to inquire and, and ask the questions to figure out really what the problem is from the human that has the problem. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for me, that was, that was the first meta skill I wanted. The second meta skill I wanted uh, to bring to our business uh, college students was the construct of, of being able to collaboratively work together and that is to share the process and help with the help further the process along. Mm -hmm. So that's where those two magic words, yes and, come in. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. So um, you only have the responsibility to add to somebody's idea. And, and then the idea of making failure a, a normal part of operations, that it's okay to fail. And that's that prototyping and, and iterative iteration uh, components of design thinking. But you, you mentioned... Um, you find that organizations, the organizations you've studied had a problem-solving process mm -hmm. and you can figure out the skill in that. So now you have the individual and the organization success at heart because the individual knows how to get, how to gain that skill or improve upon that skill. And the organization knows that skill helps make it successful. Yeah, and I think that, that, is, uh, that tie right there is, is, uh, is really important. In that, again, it's the individual and collective success. And so often people want to contribute. They want to be a part of it. In fact, we call this the pull factor, which is the natural desire for people to connect and want to be a part of and contribute. And so through design thinking and processes of, of innovation that are really focused more on collaboration than indiv individual problem solving, you can see how the two come together, which is is really what ideally every organization is looking for. Every leader of an organization wants their people to be able to solve problems and collaborate and work together. And so that, that idea in of itself becomes a really a valuable one. I think there's something else in it too that we discovered through the work. Um, and so by way of background, what we did is once we selected the 21 organizations to work with, 
we conducted interviews and we and we uh, got as much information as we could from them on how it is that they practice innovation and and how they actually apply design thinking. And one of the things that was remarkably powerful was the influence on the culture in a number of ways. One you just pointed out in, in, in your um, design of the innovation lab here is that, that skill set of listening well and being open to listening to identify the right problems to be solved, which is in of itself very powerful in any culture, in any organization or any team to be able to listen to one another to be able to identify what the right problem is to be solved. One of the things that we did learn was that organizations in our in our study group, what they were good at in comparison to other organizations is that they were able to not just go after low-hanging fruit. We have a propensity as human beings to make ourselves feel good and get a sense of accomplishment by solving problems. Unfortunately, in organizations, all too often, what we do is we go after the easy problems to solve because we can get kudos, we can get you know, recognized for it, you know, and, uh, and, and we still may not be solving the right problem. And so what we found was that there's a tremendous influence on the culture that allows people then to engage in deeper levels of exploration. Uh, more significant levels of listening take place to really understand one another and to get at understanding what the right problem is. So there's that listening piece. And in any culture, in any relationship of human beings, so much of mutual respect and capability comes from, not from the speaking part, rather from the listening element that that gets reinforced in, in the cultures of the organizations, which is really, again, not only is it, is it powerful, it also leads to higher levels of performance. So we talked uh, uh, in one of our podcasts with Tim Story, and we talked a little bit about the you know, we're busy humans pushing things out, uh-huh. um, you know, and, and emanating uh, outward for the message. And, you know, part of design thinking is to pull in, right? To, to pull that new information in. And I'm going to throw the movie reference in early this week. Um, you know, I, I one of my family's favorite movies and a movie that I really enjoy is a movie called Chef. I know this might hit, uh, might hit a chord with you, with your background as a chef. Uh, have you seen it? No. All right. So it's a must watch. You told me that it's a must watch. It's a a must watch. John Favreau. It's a story of a father and a son, but um, John Favreau is a chef in a restaurant. Uh And he has been a well-regarded chef by a food blogger. And the food blogger is now coming to um, write about the food and the meal experience at John Favreau's restaurant. And... John Favreau wants to create a meal for him. Mm-hmm. And uh, the food scenes in this movie are, are just absolutely amazing. I mean, they start with, you know, the, the delivery of, of the whole pig and, you know, him, him uh, butchering the pig there uh-huh. to, to prep for the meal and then going to the farmer's market and getting the fresh vegetables and things like this. Um, but he runs into a confrontation, and I want to get to a conversation about um, confrontation and, and what collaboration really means because I think – Collaboration can be this kind of happy sharing kindergarten-esque version. And that's not what you write about in the book, actually. Um, so so let, me, let, me, let me finish before we go. Uh-huh. So uh, the owner of the restaurant is a, is a character played by Dustin Hoffman. And he comes in and says, you know, we're having a big critic here tonight. What are you cooking? 
and and John Favreau so excitedly explains this new menu, this special menu that he is creating to listen to the critic, right? Because that's the relationship of of the chef and the critic, mm-hmm. right? You put it out there to listen to the feedback. And uh, Dustin Hoffman um, plays his trump card as the owner of the restaurant and says, um, you know, I, I, one of the lines he says is, you know, if you went to see the Rolling Stones and they didn't play Satisfaction, you'd be pissed. So just play the greatest hits, man. Yeah. You know, we don't need new music. <laughs> and so uh, um, he cooks the, the same menu that is on the menu every night for the critic, and the critic slams him. Um, you know, and he... And Nothing he, new here. <laughs> and he gets up for round two, and, and then basically the, the restaurant owner says, um, you'll do what I tell you. And neither the restaurant owner, the restaurant owner is no longer listening externally. Mm-hmm. The chef is trying. Mm-hmm. And so in your book, you talk about this kind of idea of curious confrontation uh. as part of the collaboration. And here's where I'm going. That was a long, long story. I just love that movie so much. Um, the food, and again, the food scenes are amazing. But um, I get this because, you know, that could have been some um, some confrontation that resulted in something better, but it wasn't in that movie. But in these companies that you study, you see confrontation as as a important part of the process. Tell me yeah. a little bit about that. Uh, let's uh, let's first come at the idea of you know, what is conflict, differing viewpoints, and the natural tension that conflict creates. So we always use the definition of that conflict as the the tension between a current state and desired state in whatever definition that takes. So there's an element of tension of that we're trying to solve a problem, we're trying to we're trying to get a need or a desire satisfied. And so we begin with the simple idea that with within every conflict, with every disagreement or differing viewpoints, there's a tension and that tension then allows us to see the possibility. In other words, conflict is good. So we begin with that basic thought conflict is good because there's something there that's worth looking at and exploring so we begin with that well the question is what are we exploring and so it's easy for us especially in a conflict of differing viewpoints to kind of dig in and to want to um, um, advocate a point of view to be assertive around a point of view that we have and curious confrontation begins with the idea that yes there is something at play, and we're going to actually look at it. We're going to confront it. Now, confronting for a lot of leaders is, is, is fraught with fear because just the idea of I have to confront. If we look at confronting as facing the truth, to just step into the truth, and I just did three workshops last week around this topic with, with groups of CEOs, and um, it's just so interesting it turns out that, that most leaders avoid conflict. And the reason they avoid it is the fear of failure is the number one reason. So they're afraid of, of even stepping into it because they lack competency in managing conflict. So they're afraid to do it because they don't want to be embarrassed or humiliated or, or not get a good answer. So they're afraid of it, which is interesting because you don't have to be afraid to tell the truth, really. You really don't. When That's our life experience. The truth, in a way, sets us free. And for leaders and for 
people within organizations to be able to just understand the simple idea that confronting a conflict doesn't mean I need an answer. It just means I need to point out that there's a conflict. If there's a problem, I just need to point at it and say, look, there's a problem here, and we ought to be talking about it. And then rather than to have an answer for it, rather have inquiry, to move to a place of exploration and inquiry. So curious confrontation is that I'll, I'm able to speak the truth that there's something here that needs to be talked about. I don't have, an a- have to have an answer. What I do need to do is be able to say, look, we need, we need to talk about this, and then to begin through inquiry by asking questions. And design thinking and the steps of design thinking always begin with contextual inquiry. They always begin with empathy and listening to understand another person's experience. So when you think about human-centered design, when you look at it through that lens, and that's powerful. When you think that most leaders avoid, most leaders, we know this, avoid conflict for three reasons. The first one is a feel failure. The second one is that it takes time. And time is, when, when we listen to people, we give them the gift of time because it takes time to really listen and understand a person's point of view or to understand data and to understand um, what people are thinking, seeing, and feeling. So that's truly, in a way, we give each other a gift. By the way, the third one is a fear of not being liked. Yeah. So leaders will, will avoid, people avoid conflict because they're afraid they're not going to be liked by someone, which goes all the way down to the depth of, of you know, acceptance and, can I be truthful with you and that you're still going to accept me <laughs> for, for doing so? So this idea of curious confrontation is so powerful because what it is, it's giving permission to speak the truth and then to seek the truth through inquiry by being curious. Um, one of my favorites of all time uh, at times is the story about uh, Einstein the night before he received the Nobel Prize for Physics and some journalists had him cornered at a, the reception the night before he received the, the prize. And, and one of the journalists said, you know, why you? You know, here's this little guy with the frizzy hair and kind of odd. <laughs> and he says, why you? How did you figure this out? What, you know, what makes you so special? And uh, he just, Einstein just grinned and answered with, well, I guess I'm just curious. Yeah. Uh, I love that story. I love that story, Edgar. And, you know, I just... You create such a dream space for me that you would go to work in an organization. I, I mean, I'm lucky as an academic to be able to have some of that um, curiosity in my work um, quite often. Not as often as I want. Yeah, I mean, that's academia at its best. Yeah, is it is. People are coming from a place of curiosity and inquiry. Well, and, right? and you know, those of us that, that have a doctoral degree, um, those degrees are fraught with, with the confrontation component yeah. as well. I mean, and that is one of our, that is one of our uh, quote-unquote upbringings through the academic world is to challenge. This makes leadership in, in higher education really difficult because uh, the leaders that really have a hard time wrestling with whether they can be liked, uh-huh. <laughs> how much time it's going to take. I mean, academia is notoriously slow. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and largely it's because we're a very large most of us are in large, broad organizations, and the time, the time to find out what is really going on. Um, I, I don't know that I've rolled this one out in the podcast. I have uh, a friend of mine uh, gave me this phrase that I borrowed: that there's never a good time for the cat to throw up on the carpet. Jim, <laughs> did, did I say that one before, Jim? No, I just, I, you know, I, I love, 
<laughs> I love that phrase because it makes everybody just pause for a minute and be I'll like, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, Steve Jones at the Air Force Academy, he, he gave me that one and uh, as a friend and colleague. And, you know, there's never going to be a good time to go listen to others and let them honestly point out issues in their work, in their day, in their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, but without it, one of the other attributes you talk about is identifying and tackling the right problems. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that low-hanging fruit. Yeah. It's not the easy problems. It's the it's, right problems. It's the right problems. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and we've seen many organizations. I mean, it's so, you know, Edgar, we, we interview these folks and we ask them these, these questions. Two of those questions are, how does the organization solve problems? Yes. And how does it deal with conflict? Mm-hmm. Right. Always, always interesting feedback on those two questions. Yeah, because they're the, they're, the, yeah, they're, they're the things that leaders and organizations struggle with the most. And then there's something else that you mentioned before that, that fits into it and what you wanted to build into the space here at the Innovation Center, and that's the idea of failure. And what design thinking does, it gives people permission. It gives them permission to be able to take some risks. And why risk-taking says a lot of about who we are. Uh, our sense of autonomy is very often um, manifested through our ability to make decisions, which means that I'm going to go take a risk, and it's okay to take that risk. And the idea of design thinking, when you look at the steps and you move into ideation and the freedom to ideate, to just uh, articulate ideas, and then the ability to create prototypes and to test those prototypes. And it really, in a way, it reflects life and our experiences of life. Uh, one of our experiences in life is to try and make everything neat and tidy. And I think a lot of times in organizations, we have the tendency to want to keep things neat and tidy. And the reality is, that's not the way things really work. And so we need to be able to take some risks. And we found in some of the conversations with people within uh, Visa and Marriott and IBM Watson and GE, the health health, uh, division of GE, and when we were doing those interviews, how readily available the idea of risk was to people. It wasn't something to be shied away from. It was something that's a normal consequence of solving problems and making decisions to be able to take a risk and to make that okay. And we meet a lot of leaders that talk that language. We meet a lot of leaders that talk that language, yet the experience of the people working with them isn't in alignment where we're told it's okay to take a risk and then we somehow feel punished or we wind up in in a defensive situation uh, by taking a risk. And yeah. so one of the things that we also found was the need for aligned leadership. One of the, one of the characteristics here is how well does a, is leadership prepared to align to being able to use design thinking and to behave innovatively? Yeah. Yeah. You and I have talked uh, for a long time about, you know, in an organization, we all, we, we are presented um, almost clubbed over the head with innovative leaders like a Steve Jobs and a Bill Gates of the world. Uh-huh. Um, but we often don't talk about the rest of the organization as if one human being can change an entire culture and really the execution of innovation by design mm-hmm. is how it penetrates down through the organization. So 
I know that you know this, but my research agenda is on the alignment of leadership. And, and we find with a lot of the companies that you and I work with that what we hear is there's a, there's a step from one level of leadership to another where you can almost see where these things might not get executed as well. And that can be for many reasons. It can be that the, the, the line supervisor knows that their, their role is dependent upon X. Mm-hmm. It's got a performance metric that's not tied to the same cultural components of problem solving, conflict management, um, the welcoming of, of experimentation and failure. Yeah. Yeah. And there's so much in this too, because one of the things that you can look at is if you look at it through the lens of competencies and capabilities, um, as I mentioned before, what are the great barriers to innovation in organizations? Number one is the lack of people having problem solving skills. So that, do we really look at that as a set of competencies that we engage people in? Do we do we look at it through the lens of assuring that the culture in and of itself and how we give permission to people to engage in problem solving, design, innovation, and taking risk? How much of that is then embedded as part of the organization? And what we found in Intuit is remarkable doing this. SAP is great at doing this. What we found in in working with them was. Um, their uh, their ability to to onboard people, to clearly onboard people and share with them here's the here is the problem solving process that we use here. This is what this is what it looks like, which is really a way of doing getting two things done. One is you're building a set of shared competency through the organization. The other one is you're influencing again. You're influencing the culture in a way where you're onboarding people and giving them a clear definition of here's what it looks like to get to success. After all, most people, when they come into an organization, we and I think everyone out there listening has experienced this, is that you learn about the culture and how things get done through trial and error. And organizations that really think about innovation and do it well, it's not, it's not done in hindsight. It's not an on-job training per se. It, it's something that you prepare people for as soon as they come walking in the door. So they have a clear idea of how to participate in success, which is what everyone is interested in doing. How do I participate? How do I contribute to success? It's natural for us as human beings to want to do that. I think the only time that people shy away from it is when their experience informs them in the opposite direction to say, no, that's not that's not that's not acceptable here. Or uh, you're not supposed to be playing that way, and so then people check out. They become disengaged when they're not given given those opportunities. So it's it's so powerful to see the traits and characteristics of a highly innovative culture being something that's done very intentionally and very deliberately. It, it's as much as anything else, culture and the way that people solve problems together, that's um, that's something that you think strategically about. You don't just wait for it to manifest. You make sure it manifests. Well, that making sure it manifests, Edgar, too, is you you have power to change it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Right. I, you know, again, you know, one of the companies we recently worked with, um, you know, some of our follow-on work is going to be in that onboarding space. Yeah. And then inviting the customer to it. I, you, when you think about alignment and you think about a customer experience, 
that you realize that organizations struggle with the idea of problem solving and innovation. And so if you develop that internally, how do you invite your customer to it? I, Visa has an innovation lab and multiple innovation labs throughout the world. I mean, that's, and that's just one example. Um, Kohler has their innovation lab up in uh, Wisconsin, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so, you start looking at it as not just an alignment internally through the organization, then you start seeing it as innovatively a way of thinking about your customer experience. And yeah, so we're working with an organization that is moving in the direction of, of embedding it in their culture and then taking it a step further and inviting their customers to the, to the training and development process so that their customers gain. And there's an alignment and a way of thinking of working with the customer that allows for, uh, if you want to influence change, if you want to um, adapt new ways to do things, new ways of thinking, there is a very inviting and very engaging way of doing that. You know, the the role of a chief innovation officer is a relatively new, uh-huh. is a, a relatively new space. I was fortunate enough a few years ago to go to Austin, Texas, to an innovation uh, design thinking conference with a lot of these CIOs from major companies across the world. And, you know, there's a bunch of stories that they shared that that stood out to me and still stand out to me. One that inviting the customer in, there's a wonderful story from the chief innovation officer at REI. And, you know, I don't know if you know this, I had to really think about my experience as a customer, but the folks in REI wear these vests. Yeah. And because they're an outdoor company and they have really moved into kind of uh, become an outdoor clothing company uh, in addition to their gear, they wanted to tech up their employees' vests. Well, two things happened. One, the employees wear these vests as a mark of their expertise in the outdoor space. So the patches from the national parks and the, you know, the, the things that might hang off of their vest, and so they were getting ratty, and so they wanted to techify these things and, and remake these kind of spacesuit like vests that indicated the quality of REI's clothing. But the customers knew who to trust based on what their vests look like. Uh, mm-hmm. And so they had to stop a process of recreating the vest and allow the customer and the employee conversation to happen to really get to a point of um, how do we recognize expertise and pride in role and tr- and trustworthiness for the customer. And so really it was a, a very fantastic conversation to hear that chief innovation officer pause because they got new information mm-hmm. up in their process. Yeah. 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 To keep it, to keep it open, keep it agile. I mean, and there's this conversation always about agile. We really, what is it, right? Ag- <laughs> being agile is be able to see, in any process or any form of work and how it's being done and what the outcomes are to be able to make changes, to innovate on the fly. I mean, that's agility is innovating on the fly. It really is. Unless you give people the skills and the capabilities or give them a means through which, again, to understand what the process is and have some predictability on how to create success, that's awfully difficult. Uh, we run into a lot of organizations where leaders are speaking the language of, of agility with what they aspire to because they want it so badly and they're struggling with the idea of, well, how do I make that happen? Um, and then you just can't command it. it <laughs> that doesn't work. 
you have to, the pull factor is about engaging people and bringing people to it because they want to be a part of it, which again is a natural tendency we have as human beings. What we're really doing is the expectation of highly innovative organizations is that leaders are able to see it and use it in a way that's much more natural and much more um, available and making that available to the people around them to be able to, 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 um, to use it. So Edgar, for all the, all the folks you work with, we work with together, mm-hmm. what would be the one piece of advice? They haven't read your innovation by design book with Tom Lockwood. They know they, they've hired true alignment and Edgar Papke or, <laughs> or they, they come into our executive education program here in the college What's the one piece of advice that anchors that anchors the learning and the work that a leader must do to create these conditions? A couple of things immediately come to mind. One is that, um, and we talk about this in innovation by, devi- by design, is uh, the idea of the collective imagination and the fifth order of design. And um, just to give you a quick rundown on that, the collective imagination is something that we were looking for a definition for what makes imagination and innovation work. And it goes back to just basic basic principles of human motivation. And leaders need to be aware that there's three pieces here that they need to pay attention to. One is how to create participation and processes for participation, to be clear on that. Number two is the pursuit of knowledge which it comes through curiosity. Leaders, and, and as we develop our organizations and our cultures, we need to be able to infuse curiosity into them. And the only way to infuse it is by role modeling it and reinforcing it as leaders. And then the third one is free expression, which is about the ability to just simply allow people to express what they think, see, and feel. I know that that sounds simple. Would you ask people, can you tell the truth at work? And I would suggest to you majority of people will say no, that they're afraid to do so. So the collective imagination and the, f- and the fifth order of design is if you look at the history of human innovation and design, we're at a place now where awareness and human awareness of human emotion and, and, and uh, what really drives us and motivates us as human beings is at the core of success. It's the core of understanding the CX, the customer experience, at the core of understanding the the uh, employee experience and how to align those and bring those to life, we need to be able to understand that the more aware our workforce is, it's not something to be afraid of, that we need to embrace that. And the more aware and the greater the mindfulness and the, and the mental well-being is of employees, the higher degree of innovation, of engagement, of performance that we will naturally get uh, from human beings, which makes our organizations work and which makes business at the end of the day work. So I think those are really important and those tie into the, the last thought I have about in answer to your question is uh, leaders need to do that work. Leaders need to see themselves for who they really are and increase their own awareness of their own motivations, their own influence on the systems that we call organizations and cultures and to uh, greater clarity of what that looks like and how to do that better so that they can elevate their power of choice. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Edgar. I am, I'm reminded of, I used to be a contractor um, for the carrier corporation and I had the opportunity, wonderful opportunity to listen to a bunch of their, they, 
they opened a fitness facility where I was and they invited a bunch of their retirees and their families back mm-hmm. um, to, to u- utilize the fitness facility, the health facility. And I got just to spend a tremendous amount of, of, of wonderful time listening to them storytell uh, about their experiences. And, and if you listen to them storytell about their experiences, they will tell you things about uh, company picnics. Mm-hmm. They'll tell you emotional things yeah. that really uh, undergird their fondness. I, I mean, in, in pride, deep, deep pride. Um, in those in those roles and in those companies, yeah. And anytime you ask people to point back at something in their careers, and they begin with, "Well, we created this success," the "we" shows up very quickly. Yeah. Uh, and they start talking about the relationships. Yeah. Yeah. Great point. So I I, I said at the beginning, you know, the true alignment framework, design thinking, so elegant in its simplicity to see still very difficult to do takes consistent consistent effort you talk about things like whole communications and how much mm-hmm. intentionality needs to be done to um, create and drive alignment um, I just so appreciate that I just want to say thank you well thank you yeah. alright so with that I'm Ken Sagendorf and I'm Edgar Papke Thanks for joining us today on the True Alignment Podcast. As always, we welcome your thoughts, your questions, uh, your comments during the podcast, between the podcast, and hopefully we'll see you soon. Yep. See you next time around on the True Alignment Podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Edgar. 